Join us for an immersive personal encounter with a single work of art as seen through the eyes of an art historian. You're listening to In the Foreground Object Studies, a podcast series from the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute. In this episode, Joan Key, professor of art history at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, describes the persistent timeliness of Chow Chen Yang's 1942 photograph, Apprehension, which vividly evokes muteness, surveillance, and precarity, particularly as experienced by those who are Asian in the United States, whether during World War II or today. My name is Joan Key, and today I'll be speaking about the 1942 photograph taken by Chinese-American photographer Chow Chen-Yang, who was based in Seattle. I've been thinking a great deal about this photograph on and off since I first saw it in 2008 at a landmark survey of Asian-American art that took place at the De Young Museum in San Francisco. But it's only been in the last few weeks that the timeliness of this photograph has all but compelled me to verbalize perhaps some of the thoughts that have been latent. And it's not a very large image. When it's shown for display in a museum, it's about 15 by 12.5 inches. So roughly about the dimensions of a piece of typing paper, maybe a little larger. It shows a young man of East Asian extraction, looking anxious, frazzled, He's not wearing a shirt or any sort of upper uh, bodily garment, and it looks like he's been roused from slumber at an ungodly hour. He's shown holding a phone, and you see that the way he holds the phone, his fingers are curled almost like a fist, so there's a distinctly combative affect to the work. His face is illuminated by an outside source that seems to be coming from below. So what that does is that the light then reflects and reverberates against his features so that his face starts to reemerge as a terrain not only of light and shadow, but also of tension. We see his brow furrowed. We see an unruly lock of uh, hair kind of uh, cascading down his forehead, and one of the hairs almost resembles something of a blade just about to pierce his nose. There's a hint of five o'clock shadow gracing his upper lip. So the sense of time of the nocturnal is also emphasized by the background. We don't see where he is. We don't know if he's in his home. We don't know if he is outside. Uh, There's no sense of origin that's uh, that that's present. But uh, for me, the perhaps the most striking part of this photograph is the color. This is taken decades before debates regarding color photography would become mainstream. Now, Yang was a pioneer in color photography in his adopted hometown of Seattle. And we see that the flesh is, looks like it's bathed in gold. The cheeks are especially ruddy. They're flushed. We don't know if they're flushed from anger, shame, uh, anxiety. Yang is very careful not to give away too much information. But we do know that the color that he's using here 
this isn't the color of a color advertisement or of Technicolor film. This is really the color of emergency. Now, part of that emergency is suffused with a certain um, receptivity to film. Yang actually worked at RKO Pictures in 1946, the same studio and also the same year that Alfred Hitchcock released Notorious. Notorious being the film with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman about uh, a Nazi conspiracy in South America and perhaps most notable for one of its last scenes where Bergman's character is deprived of a phone, so she can't call for help. Here in Apprehension, the phone seems to loom much larger than we ordinarily might expect it, that uh, you see the receiver looking larger than it actually is. So when the light hits the surface of the receiver, we see its shadow bouncing off the man's body. So it just becomes larger than life. Now, the color that we see here, it could be caused by the light of a bedside lamp. But to me, it registers more as the color of emergency, of flashing sirens, exploding bombs, fires that refuse to be put out, or even the glare of an interrogation bulb. And I say this because for Yang, who had been interrogated by Vancouver police on suspicion of being a Japanese spy simply because he was photographing um, city sites, this is an anecdote that seems to have structured his attention, even though it took place in 1939. Now, Yang served as a diplomat under the Republic of China government. So this is the government that preceded that of Mao Zedong in 1949. This is important because if we think about the color of emergency, the emergency that was also taking place is that of the transfer of suspicion. When it came to and the perennial suspect Asian body, you have the transfer of suspicion from the Japanese, the former wartime enemy, to that of China. So the pathology that's ascribed to the Chinese body in particular is something that Yang had personal knowledge. He was a go-between for illiterate uh, Chinese seamen, so men who had worked on merchant ships during World War II, who had been promised U.S. permanent residency as a reward for their work, only to be met with deportation proceedings. It's sort of one of the great uh, untold tragedies of uh, the post-war era. And it was so egregious that even U.S. congressmen like Henry Jackson of Washington State, who had in fact supported Japanese-American internment, said, you know what, the ways these seamen have been treated, it's, they've been treated, quote-unquote, rather badly. The least we could do is to grant them their green cards to reward their loyalty. Now, Yang was very deeply involved in this, and I don't want to say that this photograph is necessarily a reenactment of how he might have imagined uh, the internal emotional state of these seamen. I don't think it's staged speculation of what it would have been like to be one of these men, but it definitely serves as a trace. What also strikes me about apprehension is that it's an image that was of its time and certainly reflected particular anxieties, but one of the reasons why this image has stayed with me is that it 
is eminently applicable to numerous temporalities. Uh, originally, when I saw this image at the de Young Museum, the museum label indicated it as having been made in 1951. So roughly 10 years after uh, it, was, uh, it had originally been created. But uh, even with that dating, apprehension is able to summon many different threads of discrimination, of alienation, of unbelonging, of unfreedom, in ways that also cast a new light on our current age of endemic violence. But also, how does this photograph allow us to think about these structures with, that just that appear to keep on repeating? The title of the work is especially apt, apprehension being a word that connotes either the fear of imminent harm or legally permissible seizure. And again, if you were a Chinese body, this is something that was deeply intertwined, that the two really couldn't be extricated from the other. Apprehension is a picture of listening and also of muteness. So we see that the man's face is magnified here. And sometimes we might uh, associate magnification with being able to make yourself heard at a much larger magnitude or scale. So if, if magnification were assigned an oral metaphoric equivalent that might be screaming, but here the man doesn't speak. His lips are just slightly parted, but there's no sound. And while pictures are, of course, non-audible unless there's a direct, say, built-in sound component, Yang does, a, I think, a very good job in suggesting that the man is capable of saying something, and then he prevents us from hearing it altogether. The man has no name. He has no indication of an identity, even though the scale of the head nudges us towards ascribing a portrait status to the work. Yang doesn't, doesn't let us uh, see things so easily. And in many ways, the visibility of the model that he uses here depends on us not hearing him. This is maybe why the figure seems trapped, not because of the tight cropping, but because all he can do is to be seen in vivid, excessive color. I can't help think about the relevance of this image now, where maybe it's us that's trapped in a box configured by an image-making machine that makes all kinds of visual material constantly, even incessantly available. But it's also a machine that's structured in a way that precludes any real intervention. And here is where I think that the perpetual timeliness of the image comes into play. Apprehension res resonates even now, because that fear of imminent harm is even more than before the baseline of existence for those who are Asian in America. One last detail I'd like to note. Back to the telephone receiver. Its surface mimics the effects of polished wood, but its shape echoes that of a gavel, an object sounded to mark the beginning of a ceremony or the finality of a verdict. 
And this is a work that twins apprehension with judgment and perhaps is a call for us to intervene in ways that the verdict doesn't always result in the terminal guilt of those who are inevitably marked as Asian. Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, Object Studies, a podcast from the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute. The Clark sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors past and present, and to future generations, by committing to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all. This series is created and produced by me, Caitlin Woolsey, with assistance from Caro Fowler, Samantha Page, and Jesse Centivan. Sound editing and musical interludes composed by John Butine, and theme music by Light Chaser. To see images and more information about the artwork discussed, please visit clarkart.edu slash podcast slash object studies.